1: When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in everybody! Episode 571 yeah. of the podcast. the is Sleeping America, the Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, August 17th. 2,022 people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody's ready for what should be, not what should be, what will be, a fun midweek edition of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Here is what you need to know today. We're going to open, we'll talk some college football, but rather than, you know, kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel to try and find little stories here and there, what I want to do is kind of a big picture, I don't want to call it a preview but maybe a conversation about some of the stories in college football that are a little bit off the radar. We're calling it college football superlatives, like your high school yearbook. We're going to talk about the most interesting, the most unique, the storylines that nobody is talking about, the coach most likely to drive their fan base wild, different approach to preseason college football content. But I think I'm going to hit on a lot of the stories that we have not yet gotten to on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast this fall. College football now 10 Days away, cannot believe it. Cannot be more fired up from there. We'll sort of stay in the college, whatever space. Paul Feinbaum coming after John Calipari says Calipari is no longer the best man for the job. I'm going to tell you why I completely disagree. And from there, we will finally wrap. As I told you on Monday's show, all of these midsummer college basketball tours are essentially over. Arkansas played in Europe. Alabama played in Europe, Kentucky played in the Bahamas, we're going to talk about 4-5-6, Auburn played in Israel, talk about 4-5-6 of these summer tours, just give you some quick thoughts on these teams, I'm not going to spend 25 minutes breaking down uh, Alabama's front court uh, against a a B-level team in Europe, but I do think there were some good takeaways and we will get into all of those, so fun episode, we're going to have a good time, college football is near, I keep saying it stay tuned to the Aaron Sports Podcast. We have some major, 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 major announcements coming in the coming weeks, and I am really excited to share those with you. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day here on a Wednesday. And the topic of the day, I think you can argue, this is maybe the single tough I don't want to say it's the toughest week to come up with content there's never a tough week to come up with content in August when we are this close to college football but it's weird because we're kind of at this weird inflection point where you've heard all of the preseason content you've heard why this team's going to overachieve and this team's going to underachieve and why this coach is on the hot seat but we're not quite at the finish line yet Whereas next week, we'll be able to preview games, and I think next week is where I'm going to give you my preseason national championship pick, and my preseason Heisman pick, and all that good stuff. So we're kind of in the middle. We're not really getting a ton out of camp. We're past media days, and so what I decided to do today is something fun, something different, and something that I do think you will enjoy. I'm calling it college football superlatives going into the season, okay? So we all, I, th- I would hope, I think went to high school, and if you didn't, maybe you didn't, you know, whatever, not my business, but I think we all went to high school, and we all know that high school yearbook, in the back end of the yearbook, you have all those quirky superlatives, right, uh, uh, most likely to dye your hair pink, and most likely to run for president, and funniest, and most likely to eat ice cream for breakfast every day, I don't know what your high school was like, but I, I can't even remember, I'm too old to know what the superlatives were in my high school. But I bring it up because I think that's a fun and interesting way to talk a little bit about college football and maybe some of the storylines that I frankly haven't hit on here in the preseason in July and August, getting ready for the start of the college football season. So we're going to hit on a lot of different topics. It's not just going to be the most generic uh, preseason favorite, preseason bust, preseason that. We're going to get to a lot of different things, including, I think, two or three topics that you won't hear anywhere else. I think it's going to be really fun. So let's get into college football superlatives for 2022. The first college football superlative, this is pretty straightforward. Best team in college bas- uh, college football coming into this year. And I should clarify, this doesn't mean that this is going to be my pick to win the national championship. But what I do, what I will say, I do think there is one team that is very clearly better than everybody else. That is the Alabama Crimson Tide. Total shock, Alabama Why it's worth talking about today is, of course, because the AP poll came out on Monday. Alabama, this is maybe the most incredible stat that that I can think of in sports going right now. Alabama was ranked number one in the first AP poll. It is now the 15th straight season that Alabama will be ranked number one at some point in the season under Nick Saban. I think it is safe to say we will never see anything close to that again I mean we've had teams in the top five in the top 10 number one number two but for 15 straight years to reach number one especially in the SEC especially in this expanded playoff era I just think it's absolutely incredible and I think it speaks to the fact that Alabama very much is indeed the best team coming into the season why I think we all know besides the fact that Nick Saban has the number one or number two recruiting class pretty much every year first off they got the best player in college football, the best offensive player for sure, and that is Bryce Young. I know there's this big narrative about C.J. Stroud has surpassed him on draft boards, and what is his future in the NFL like? He's a little bit small; he's not prototypical size. Well, all I know is he's played one year of college football in a you know in a starting capacity, and he was unbelievable. Forty. I think we sometimes just undersell how good guys are, and how good a, a player like Bryce Young was last year. Do you know that Bryce Young? Through 47 touchdown passes last year, like, like, like we just take for granted that the next guy at Alabama is going to be great and he's going to dominate. This after losing two first round picks at wide receiver the year before, uh, a starting running back in Najee Harris who was a first round pick, Bryce Young steps in for Mac Jones and no problem, 47 touchdowns, 7 interceptions, leads Alabama to a national championship game. They obviously have the best player on defense, Will Anderson. The The stats from Will Anderson are just absolutely comical. I mean, okay, so we go back to last year. Will Anderson, 33.5 and TFLs last season. Now, I understand he played 15 games, one more than most people uh, You know that, that played 14 games. Some teams only played 12 or 13. 33.5 tackles for loss is absolutely insane. Uh, 17 and a half sacks also led the country. Yes, it is a narrative that was blown up you know, this time last year, but I think it's totally fair. It was absurd that he wasn't vo- uh, brought to New York as part of the Heisman Trophy winner. He was indisputably one of the five best players in college football last year. And we'll get into my Heisman pick next week, but you talk about a guy that I think can legitimately win the award as a defensive player. Will Anderson is it. The thing with Alabama, though, we know how it is. It's across-the-board talent. They have one of the best running backs in college football in Jameer Gibbs who came from Georgia Tech, averaged over five yards per carry, and did it basically in an offense where he is—he was the only threat all season long. Five 5.2 yards per carry, 470 yards rushing. He had a bunch of catches out of the backfield. Now imagine what he's going to do with multiple first-round wide receivers on the outside, a first-round quarterback that can beat you deep, I think this guy could be one of the breakout stars nationally where we sit there and say, wow, had no idea how good this guy was. Obviously, at the wide receiver position, two elite difference makers via the transfer portal. Jermaine Burton, who Mel Kuyper has already tabbed a potential first-round pick. Tyler Harrell from Louisville, uh, you have uh, with Alabama, on the defensive side of the ball, so many difference makers. Uh, Henry Toto at linebacker, probably a guy that's going to be a first-round pick. Fourth-year starter in the SEC, of course, played two years at Tennessee before coming to Alabama. You have Eli Ricks, the transfer from, uh, from LSU. Now, I know Nick Saban has said that he is a little bit behind just from a physical perspective. He was hurt. That guy's going to be a difference maker. And then the defensive backfield, of course, Jordan Battle, Brian Branch, both returning starters there. Kool-Aid and McKinnister, you go on and on. There's just NFL first-round talent all over this field. When I look at Alabama, I really do believe, not only is this the best team, I do think there's actually a pretty big gap between them and Ohio State, and we'll get to Ohio State in these uh, college football superlatives a little bit later. But I look at this team, outside of maybe offensive line, and I think even the offensive line last year probably struggled more because of coaching with Doug Marone than because of the actual talent on the field, I just don't even think there's a debate. I think Alabama is by far the most talented team in the country. They are number one in the preseason. They deserve it. Alabama, the best team in college football according to AT's college football superlatives. How about the most motivated team coming into the year? Oh, that's Alabama too. And that is why this is such a scary proposition for the rest of college football. There have been years where Alabama has the most talented roster uh, top to bottom in college football. As a matter of fact, it's probably most years over these past 15 years that Nick Saban has been at Alabama. There have been years that Alabama has been head and shoulders above everybody else, and there have been years where their talent simply overwhelms people. Rarely do they come in with the most talented roster in college football and actual motivation. Because, first of all, most years they're coming off a national title. But even when they're not coming off a national title, usually it's a situation where maybe like two, you know, two, three years ago, whatever it was, there were injuries. Remember, it was what, 2019, Tua gets hurt in the regular season, Um, and, and, and Alabama was motivated coming into the next year, but it wasn't as though... They were really like like that was the year where everything went wrong and that's just how football happens sometimes. And then there's other years by the way where sometimes you 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 don't win the national championship but you lose to a really good team like with Clemson. Well, you go back to Alabama last year. Here's why they're motivated. There's a team down in College Station, Texas that thinks that they are ready to take Alabama's throne. So you have that October 6th date already marked on the calendar. Oh, A&M's coming to town. And we're fixing to give them a you-know-what whooping just to show them who's boss. Because, one, Jimbo Fisher had a lot to say during the offseason. Now, I defend Jimbo Fisher because he only responded to Nick Saban. But, two, remember Alabama did, in fact, lose to Texas A&M last year. And then they lost a national title game where, to be blunt, they easily could have won it. And so it's not as though Alabama's coming into this year where they said, look, everything went wrong last year. We're going to be fine. They're not coming into a year where they're saying, we just got beat by a better team. Now, I think Georgia was the better team. It's not to discredit Georgia. But you start looking at Alabama and saying, there are 85 guys in that locker room or 60 whatever, not the freshmen that weren't there last year. There are 60-plus guys in that locker room that said, you know, we catch a little break here. We catch a little break there. We're the national champions. We were as good as anybody. We beat Georgia when we were healthy. We lose Jamison Williams in the title game. We lose John Mechie in the semifinal. Let's come out and leave no doubt this year. So I'm fascinated to watch Alabama. This is the rare year where they don't have the big season opener, but week two they're at Texas, and we're going to be talking about Texas later. Alabama, not only the most talented team in college football, but also the most motivated. Let's get to our next superlative. The biggest, the team with the biggest difference between their ceiling and their floor. Now you could go with a couple different teams here. But I am gonna go with another team that is just absolutely fascinating coming into the year it is Dabo Sweeney's Clemson Tigers because I do think Clemson is probably one of only about four to five teams that I truly believe can legitimately win the national championship okay there are Dark Horse playoff contenders uh, Utah might be one we'll talk about you know Utah's a potential college football playoff contender we'll talk about um, you know, is, uh, is Baylor a playoff contender? Is there a group of five team like Houston that can go undefeated and crash the party? Is there maybe a Big 12 team like Baylor? I think I just said. So those are... The, the, but I mean, you talk about teams that can legitimately win the national championship. That probably means beating Alabama and Ohio State back-to-back or Georgia and Alabama back-to-back. There really only are two to three teams. It's Bama, it's Ohio State. I would argue Georgia... I think maybe just maybe Oklahoma, and I think the Clemson Tigers are the only other one. They're the only other one that I think can definitively win a national championship if everything goes right, but we also saw what happened when things go wrong. Now, to Clemson's credit, despite the struggles last year, and I'm, you know I'm not, this isn't a full-time video podcast yet, I'm air-quoting struggles. They still went 10-3 and three, and I think everybody would kill, to, you know, 90% of college football fans would kill to have a down year where you go 10-3, and three, but that's not the expectation at Clemson and that is why they're so interesting this year. It all comes down to one guy and one guy only. As a matter of fact, I think you can probably argue DJ Uyla Ganale, the quarterback at Clemson, is maybe the most important person in college football. Because think about it, Bryce Young is really important. They got good backups behind them. They got Jalen Milrow behind him, who looked good in the spring game. C.J. Stroud, they'll find somebody at Ohio State. But D.J. Uelagandale, you know, you look at this guy. If he ain't it, it could be Struggle City for Clemson where they come back. Now, this year it's different because they do have a backup behind him in Cade Klubnick. But Dabo Sweeney, to his credit, is very loyal to his older guys. Now, Dabo will make a move. We saw it with Kelly Bryan and, and Trevor Lawrence about three years ago. But Dabo, for the most part, is pretty loyal to his guys. And to Dabo's credit, he keeps saying, DJ's our guy, there's zero doubt about it. Well, what if he isn't? Remember, DJ last year, don't forget, 56% completion percentage, 10 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. That does not sound like a Clemson quarterback when the last two guys that, that, uh, that were your quarterback ended up being top 15 picks into Sean Watson and Trevor Lawrence, and so if DJ ain't that guy, if he ain't improved, now they have Cade Klubnick as a backup, but you're probably potentially taking a loss in the process to get to Cade Klubnick, right, if Dabo wants to be loyal to his guy, it might not be until DJ proves that he's not the guy that you actually make the change, and by then it might be too late, and so that is why they're fascinating to me, because one, if if it all hits, they can win the national championship. But if it doesn't, and oh, by the way, we don't even know how good Cade Klubnick is. Now, we think he's good, five-star recruit, out of the state of Texas. But if he's not good, then who knows? And and, and really, what we're really saying with Clemson is for them to reach their potential, they either need a quarterback to make a massive leap that we don't know if he can make, or you need a true freshman to step in and reach your potential. And if neither of those guys do that, if DJ doesn't make the leap, if Cade Klubnick ain't that dude, Then you might be looking at, by the way, 10 and 3, 11 and 2, 9 and 4 again this year. Because the thing I'll say, lastly, on Clemson, I know we all make fun of the ACC, and and I'm I'm as guilty as anybody. They got sort of a tough schedule this year when you look at Clemson and who they got to play. You look at the schedule, they play week three, they play Wake Forest. Now, Wake Forest, their starting quarterback, uh, uh, Sam Hartman is, is injured. We don't know his status. And in Clemson's credit, they took care of Wake Forest last year, but that was late in the season when they found their groove. NC State in week four, they're a top 15 team coming into the country. It's technically week five. Then they play at Boston College, who's quietly kind of good, at Florida State, quietly should be much improved. And then late in the year, you play at Notre Dame, and you play Miami at home, and you play South Carolina at home, which is improved. And so I just look at everything with Clemson, and I can see 12-0 heading into the playoffs with the goods to compete with Clemson, on a neutra- with Alabama on a neutral field. Remember, that defense is stocked with first-round picks. But I could also see the quarterback doesn't click, the freshman isn't as good as we think, and all of a sudden we're looking up and Clemson is 3-2 and two and scratching their heads in the middle of October. Let's keep it going. Most interesting team in college football last year. Clemson has the highest ceiling to floor. I'll say this, I think the most interesting team is USC. And this isn't original, this isn't something that, um, you know, it's nothing that not everyone in college football hasn't talked about. But I don't need to sometimes get out of the world of the obvious. Sometimes it's okay for me to just hit on the most obvious observation. Well, USC is the most interesting team because we've never seen anything quite like it. First of all, we've never really seen a head coach leave a power program the caliber of Oklahoma for another in college football, I mean, you take out last year with Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma for uh, for USC, and you take out um, you know you take out uh, Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame for LSU. When's the last time we even saw a coach the caliber of those guys leave within college football? Now we've seen good coaches go from the Group of Five level to the Power Five level. We've seen coaches come back from the NFL like Jim Harbaugh. You can make fun of Jim Harbaugh, but he's been a really successful coach at Michigan for the most part. We've seen guys that were um, you know, out of coaching come back in like Urban Meyer. When's the last time you saw a guy that's about 40 years old or under, one of the best young coaches in the sport, at a blue blood historic program like Oklahoma, leave for another college job when Lincoln Riley very well could have just gone to the NFL if he didn't want to coach college football? We've never seen it, and we've certainly never seen it. You know, it's interesting. One thing I would love to know, and I don't think we'll ever get a real answer on this. I'd love to know if Lincoln Riley would have made this move if this wasn't the transfer portal era, because that's the other interesting element of this. Lincoln Riley made the move in an era where it is now easier to flip your roster than it has ever been before, and you don't need me to tell you all of the talent that Lincoln Riley brought in. He brought in probably by any tangible measurement one of the two or three best quarterbacks in college football in Caleb Williams, probably the number one pick in the 2024 NFL Draft. He brought in Jordan Addison, the Belenikov winner. He brought in a 1,000-yard rusher from Oregon in Travis Dye. He brought in a former top 50 recruited wide receiver in Mario Williams. He brought in an all-Pac-12 linebacker named Eric Gentry from Arizona State. He brought in, uh, you go on and on down the list, multiple other starters off of Power 5 programs. And that's to, and it's worth mentioning this, a program that was actually recruiting at a pretty decent level. It's not like Ohio- USC hasn't recruited well. They just haven't developed well. So there was already talent. You load up in the portal. You add a couple five stars during the recruiting process. Remember, Damani Jackson, number one cornerback in the country, goes to USC. They get a couple five-star receivers. Had a four-star named C.J. Williams committed to Notre Dame. He ends up at USC. And so I just bring it up. And we've never seen anything quite like what USC did this offseason. Now, the fun part becomes, does it translate to the field? Because on the one hand, I think you look at USC's situation, there's no doubt that they're going to have more talent than most teams that they play. There's no doubt that they're probably going to be the best coached team on the field, probably, you know, outside of maybe, what, one to two games? They're going to have the coaching advantage. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. It doesn't mean it's going to translate to wins, and that's where it becomes interesting to me, is that you look at the history of college football. It doesn't matter how good the coach is. It usually doesn't just flip a switch. You go from being really bad to really good right away. I mean, even Nick Saban went 6-7 and seven his first year. Now, keep in mind, that was, of course, the SEC. It's a little bit different, but it's not as though Nick Saban came in and competed for a national championship his first season. Uh, you go back to Urban Meyer's first year, at Florida, okay, really successful mid major head coach or group of five head coach at the time. He goes nine and three his first year at Florida, um, you know, and eight and three in the regular season when we played 11 games in the regular season. Now, Urban Meyer did go 12 and 0 in his first year at Ohio State, and that is kind of maybe the, the perfect comp to this situation because Ohio State did have probably more talent than anyone in the Big Ten. They just needed the right coach coming off the Jim Trestle, Luke Fickle situation. Urban Meyer has a ton of success in year one like maybe Lincoln Riley's that guy. But keep in mind, they play at Utah. Utah's really good. They play at UCLA. I'm just telling you, I think UCLA is maybe one of the more underrated teams in college football. Returned their whole offense and cleaned up on the defensive side of the football in the portal. Uh, you got some other interesting games at Oregon State. Oregon State has given USC trouble through the years. USC, the most interesting team, because we all kind of think it, right? There's a scenario they go 11-1 and win the Pac-12. There's also the scenario they go nine and three, eight and four, and is that sort of a disappointment in year one? Probably not? I'm just fascinated to watch. Finally, we'll, we'll break this up into two parts. We'll get to a part two of the most uh, the college football superlatives. Number, t- number five: the team most likely to have their season spiral out of control and crush their fans' soul? That is, of course, the University of Texas. And what's crazy about the Texas thing is, one, it's always Texas. Because they're Texas. But two, you can already start to see the seeds of this thing falling apart, right? Ranked in the preseason top 25 in the coaches poll, right on the fringe in the AP poll. But all the excitement out of the transfer portal this offseason, all the excitement with Arch Manning. But we can see the scenario where it goes off the rails really quick, right? And we can see, like I said, the seeds starting to be planted. First of all, as I'm recording here late Wednesday or late Tuesday, They haven't officially named a starter. Now, uh, Quinn Ewers, the kid from uh, Texas, played at Ohio State last year, transferred in. Now, he's probably going to get the job. I don't know how you bring him in and don't give it to him. And maybe they they just haven't named the starter yet because they don't want the backup Hudson Carr to transfer. But it is kind of interesting. Everybody else is starting to name their starter if they haven't already. And uh, Texas has not done that. Two, and I don't make to, like to make light or make fun, and I'm certainly not, of injuries, they took two really bad injuries this, this, this weekend. Isaiah Naor, transfer from Wyoming, really talented wide receiver, suffered a knee injury, is out for the year. A starting offensive lineman, Junior Angolow, out for the year. So you just lost two difference makers right now on top of a situation where you're coming off a five and seven season, and we don't even know if your quarterback's good. It's also worth noting, as I keep saying, Week two, who do they play? They play Bama at home, and Bama's going to win that game. But if Bama wins that game like 41-3, to what is the psyche of Texas coming out of that game? Because that, to me, is the more interesting part, right? Is the idea that everybody's got so much hype now and excitement now for this team. It only takes one scenario where things start to fall apart that you sit there and say, oh my goodness, they got smoked by Bama, and then you start to take weird losses. Good thing is, they have what should be a pretty manageable game the following week against Tennessee, uh, or excuse me, Tennessee, against UTSA, Texas, San Antonio. But keep in mind, Texas, San Antonio last year, you know what they did from a win loss perspective? Uh, yeah. They went 12 1, 12 2 after their bowl game, uh, and they were undefeated into November, okay? So you have Texas, San Antonio after that, and then you go into Big 12 play. And so, again, I know there's a lot of excitement with Texas. I'm not trying to downplay the excitement for Texas fans. What I am just saying is if you get smoked by Alabama, I could see the scenario where things fall off the rails pretty quick. All right, that's what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break, and I do want to come back, and when I come back, we'll hit on part two of college football superlatives coming into this season. Maybe I should just do two parts, one on the next episode, but we're going to stick with college football superlatives. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, how about our partners, DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook? Incredible offer for those of you who love Major League Baseball. Bet $5 on any team, any game. You're a fan of Cincinnati. You're a fan of Houston. You're a fan of Chicago, Boston, New York, whoever. That $5 on any team, and whether they win or lose, you get $100 in free bets, courtesy of the DraftKings Sportsbook. That's right, $5 on any team, $100 in free bets, whether they win or lose. Unbelievable offer. Here is how you can take advantage. Click the link in the show description and sign up for a new account with DraftKings Sportsbook and make your first deposit. Make a $5 money line bet on any team. And whether your team wins or wins, Whether your team loses, you get $100 in free bets, courtesy of the DraftKings Sportsbook. It is the best deal going in sports betting, so go ahead and act now. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-9-WITH-IN in in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona or call or text Tennessee Red Line. 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Must be 21-plus or over to enter. 18-plus or over in Wyoming. Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, Louisiana, New York only. Minimum $5 deposit. Minimum $5 wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. Uh, First of all, thank you again, partners, DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. With that said, uh, let's get back to college football superlatives, and let's start to get a little crazy here, because the first segment, you know, I kind of eased you in, let you dip your toes in the water. Best team, Alabama, duh. Most interesting team, USC, sure. Let's start to get a little crazy, though, and let's get to the next superlative, which is this, story- that no one wants to talk about, but I think could be in play by the end of the year. Story that no one's talking about, but I think could be in play by the end of the year, here it is. What if Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett just isn't very good? And you know, I don't like to criticize college football players, young guys trying their best, but I do think it's in play and I do think it's worth discussing here. Because when you think about Georgia's season, Last year, they won a national championship. I think sometimes it's easy to forget the process in which we got there. And I think, by the way, it's specifically easy to forget the process in which Stetson Bennett became a national championship winning quarterback. This was a guy that two seasons ago became the starter in the first game against Arkansas during the COVID season. By the end of the season, he gets benched. We realize that he's not good enough to beat elite teams. He loses to Florida. He loses to Alabama. He loses the job to JT Daniels. And as easy as it is to forget, coming into last season, JT Daniels was a starting quarterback at Georgia. I know I've said it a few times in this preseason. The reason I picked Georgia last year to win the national championship, how about my dogs? <laughs> The reason I picked Georgia was because I thought they quote-unquote finally had the quarterback to go along with that awesome defense. Then JT Daniels gets hurt, Stetson Bennett gets the job, and even as he keeps winning games, we keep saying, well, eventually he's going to give that job back to JT Daniels. And eventually he's going to give that job back to JT Daniels. And then just when it was clear that it was Stetson Bennett's job, what happens? He loses to Alabama in the SEC Championship game, and I know it's easy to forget this now. During that game, we all agreed Kirby Smart was making a mistake by not putting in JT Daniels to get him reps against Alabama in case they saw him again later in the playoff. Now, credit to Kirby Smart because he stuck with Stetson Bennett and Stetson Bennett did enough to beat Alabama in that title game, but we just talked about it with Alabama a minute ago. If Alabama doesn't have that slew of injuries, Georgia might not win that game. But they do win that game. Stetson Bennett is largely a college football icon But I could see the scenario where it doesn't go well for Georgia this year and Kirby Smart has a tough decision to make. First of all, they open against Oregon. I'm not saying they're losing Oregon in Atlanta. Oregon's got dudes on that defensive side of the football now. Noah Sewell, their starting middle linebacker, is going to be a first-round pick. Justin Flo, one of their other linebackers, is a former five-star recruit. They have four- and five-star recruits all over. We're going to talk about Mario Cristobal in a minute. That guy crushed in recruiting. And he recruited especially well along the offensive lines and the defensive lines. Now they never figured out quarterback post-Justin Herbert, but it doesn't change the fact that the rest of that roster is stocked. But you go on and on down the list with Georgia, it's not as though there are not games that they can lose. I don't think they're going to lose at South Carolina, but I don't think it's inconceivable. I don't think they're going to lose to Auburn, but it's not inconceivable. I don't think they're going to lose to Tennessee, but it's not inconceivable. And what if you get to, to a point in the season where maybe you're 8-1, and maybe you're 9-1, and maybe you're even 10-1, but you know that to beat Alabama in the SEC championship game, to get back to that playoff, to win in the playoff, he's not your guy. And so that is why it is fascinating to me. Because can you really bench a quarterback that just led you to a historic national championship Because I don't know if you can if you're Kirby Smart, but I think there could be a scenario where he doesn't have a choice. Because again, it's no disrespect to Stetson Bennett, but we know who he is. This was a guy that got benched two seasons ago, didn't win the job in fall camp last year. Even when he won the job, we were waiting for him to get replaced. Plays a couple good quarters against Alabama. Losing in the fourth quarter, by the way. Comes back and wins. And I just think it's going to be fascinating if it's like October 15th or whatever. October 8th and... Georgia already has a loss and they're down in the second quarter. Do you have to go to that bench? Do you have to go to a backup? I think it's in play. Next topic, story that no one wants to talk about, but I think is in play part two. So I just did part one. Let's do part two. And I want to talk Ohio State Buckeyes. I almost called this segment, this superlative, uh, head coach that's not on the hot seat, but we could have interesting questions by the end of the year. I think Ryan Day's that guy. And let me explain why, because to be clear, let's just... Put it all on the table. We're not. No one's saying Ryan Day is on the hot seat. No, I'm not even coming remotely close to saying that. But what I am saying is, we're starting to get a uh, an interesting scenario at Ohio State, where last year, yes, they go ten and two, and they lose to Michigan. At some point, if we kept playing college football and a meteor didn't hit the Earth, Michigan was going to beat Ohio State. So it's not the end of the world. And to Ryan Day's credit, I like what he did in the offseason. Defense wasn't good enough went out and got a new defensive coordinator, Jim Knowles, had a top five defense at Oklahoma State last year. I believe they got a new offensive line coach as well, a little physicality along the offensive lines. And I think we all just kind of assume, well, Ohio State had a quote-unquote down year in 10-2 last year. Well, they're going to bounce back and they're going to be fine. But what happens if they don't bounce back? What, and when I say bounce back, I don't mean, um, you know, what happens if they go 5-7? and seven? That's not going to happen. No one's saying that's going to happen. But there's a couple things here. One, we just assume that the defense is going to make this massive leap. But it's kind of like what I just talked about with Lincoln Riley. Talented players, but bad habits, whatever it was, poor coaching, underperforming, under whatever it is, they haven't performed for two years now. Now, Ryan Day's first year, when Jeff Halfley, the Boston College coach, was his defensive coordinator, they were awesome. But then Jeff Halfley left. They brought in a new defensive coordinator, Kerry Coombs, They weren't good the last two years. So I know that you have the new defensive coordinator now, but what happens if they just don't make that big step back to being a lead on defense? Beyond that, here's the other thing. The schedule is not easy by Big Ten standards. Now, they do get most of their big games at home, but here is the schedule. Notre Dame in week one at home. They get Wisconsin at home. They get Iowa, who don't forget won 10 games last year won the Big Ten West at home and they get Michigan at home. They also get Penn State on the road, and they get Michigan State on the road. And so my question is, is it absolutely inconceivable that Ohio State goes 10-2 again or 9-3? I'm not saying I'm projecting it, but is it inconceivable with that schedule? Listen to the schedule again. Notre Dame at home, Wisconsin at home, Iowa at home, Michigan at home, Penn State on the road, Michigan State on the road. That's five ranked teams to start the season, plus Penn State on the road, and Penn State should be ranked, by the way. Is it inconceivable that they go 10-2? and two? And if they go 10-2, and two, and if they don't win the Big Ten East, and if they don't win the Big Ten, you know what the conversation's gonna be? This is now year four for Ryan Day, and they've sort of kind of taken a step back every single year since he got the job. Year one, they were awesome. They brought in Justin Fields. Basically, it was most... Most of all, Urban Meyer still players and recruits. They go 12-0 in the regular season, go to the college football playoff, they lose to Clemson. Year two, okay, it's COVID, it's weird, they're 5-0. They don't really look that good, but whatever, they make the playoff, they lose to Alabama in the title game, but they get to the title game and it's not even close. Year three was last year, elite offense, terrible defense, or, or I don't want to say terrible, average defense. What happens if they go 10-2 again this year? If they go 10-2 and the defense is not good, or the defense isn't vastly improved, or the defense isn't even national championship quality, you know what the conversation becomes? There's no one else to blame for Ryan Day. At that point, you have basically all the players in the program are guys that you've recruited. You handpicked the defensive coordinator to bring in to replace Kerry Coombs. Who else's fault is it going to be? And then does it become a question of Ryan Day is a great scheme guy, a great play caller on offense, but he's not a great head coach? I'm not saying it's going to happen. But I don't think it's inconceivable either. So that's just something to keep in mind. Imagine what the conversation would be with Ohio State if they go 10-2. and two. Now again, no one's saying Ryan Day's on the hot seat. And also, I think this is worth noting as well. He could get an NFL job in .007 seconds. And so the question becomes... If they didn't have a good season, would he consider other options? I don't know. I think it's a fun, interesting conversation to have, though. Let's keep the conversation going. More college football superlatives. Let's stay in the Big Ten. Coach most likely to have his fan base up in arms by the end of the year? We just talked about Ryan Day. The answer is obviously Jim Harbaugh, right? Now, I think there's other candidates even within the Big Ten. James Franklin, for some reason, Penn State fans don't like, and I, you know, we're going to find out this year. Did he just catch a hot wave, or is he not good? I think he's good, but not a good year in COVID. Seven and five last year. Injury to the quarterback in the middle of the year. But the guy that I have to go with is Jim Harbaugh, and it's for all the reasons we've talked about. This is—I'm not going to be breaking any new ground here—but I have never seen an ebb and flow, peak and valley, quite like Jim Harbaugh. This was a guy that could never win the big one. Then he does win the big one. Then he beats Ohio State, goes to the playoff. Everybody loves him, even though he gets destroyed by Georgia. And then he goes ahead and squashes any sort of goodwill that he has in the offseason when he interviews for the Minnesota Vikings job on National Signing Day. When they have two five-star recruits in Michigan at the quarterback position, he gets neither one. Dante Moore, five-star, is committed to Oregon. C.J. Carr, grandson of Lloyd Carr, is committed to Notre Dame. He's a 2024 kid. So Jim Harbaugh has lost an awful lot of goodwill in in that state, and it goes back to a story that I think that I've told on this podcast, but if I haven't, forgive me. Last year, before the Ohio State game, I was in Vegas for Thanksgiving. Remember, the Ohio State game is on uh, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I was in Vegas for Thanksgiving, visiting family. If you remember there was a Duke Gonzaga basketball game, a Gonzaga UCLA. Uh, both games were in uh, Vegas that week. And so I went out, went out to Vegas for a few days, watched the basketball, uh, and as I was getting ready to leave, I came home on Saturday before the Michigan-Ohio State game. After the Duke-Gonzaga game, I'm walking through the casino at about probably 1 o'clock, just grabbed a bite to eat, uh, you know, was at the arena late, I think that was like a, you know, 8 o'clock Pacific tip-off, 10, 11 o'clock Eastern tip-off for Duke-Gonzaga on Black Friday. So I'm walking through the casino, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., Black Friday, and I run into a guy wearing just all maize and blue Michigan gear head to toe and they hadn't beaten Ohio State at this point they played him the next day and I said to him I said do you think this is finally the year for Harbaugh and he looks me dead in the eye he goes I don't I can't stand him I'm over it and I said if he doesn't beat Ohio State this year you think it's time to move on and he said I do I really do I know that the guy that we're going to get next is probably going to be worse from a win-loss record, but I cannot take this anymore. We need somebody new. And so I just go back to the Jim Harbaugh stuff, and I sit there and say, yes, he had a lot of goodwill after that Ohio State game, but he ruined a lot of that goodwill with some of his off-season behavior, and I just think we're on the precipice of, you look at the schedule. Schedule is pretty manageable for Michigan. We talked about how hard it was for Ohio State. Michigan does not play Iowa. They do not play Wisconsin. They get Penn State at home. They get Michigan State at home. But if he takes one weird loss, and then he gets destroyed by Ohio State, and he's 10-2, and and it isn't competitive again, it's just going to drive the fan base crazy. Another one. He's not getting fired, but he could lose that fan base really quick. Let's start to wrap. This segment, of course, is going completely off the rails, as it always does. Uh, First-year head coach I am most intrigued by. I think you can legitimately argue... This is the most intriguing crop of first-year coaches maybe ever. But you think about across the board. We talked about Lincoln Riley at USC, Brian Kelly at LSU, Billy Napier at Florida. Uh, I would argue Brent Venables is in this conversation as most interesting. But a guy that I feel like is kind of sort of fallen under the radar right now, Mario Cristobal at Miami. And listen, it's, it's interesting, right? Because we've been waiting for Miami to be back forever. And it was going to take the right guy, and it, was go- and it was always this deal of, you know, Miami was one of those programs that for years you kind of thought, it doesn't matter who coaches them, they can win at the highest level. They won a national championship with Larry Coker, they won two national championships with Dennis Erickson, five national championships under four different head coaches overall. Doesn't really matter who coaches them, they're going to be fine. Well, we've seen the last 20 years that even Miami can go into a downswing without the right coach, and I think that we think that Mario Cristobal is the right guy. Now, why it's interesting to me is this. I don't think that it's certain that Mario Cristobal is the right guy. First of all, it it was funny to me when he got hired, what was the narrative around Mario Cristobal? Oh, you know, Miami needed a Miami guy to come in and get things right. If you're not a Miami guy, you don't understand. Well, here's the thing. You know who was head coach in the early to mid-2000s at Miami? It was Randy Shannon who was a former Miami player, longtime Miami assistant, did not work out. He gets let go. Al Golden comes in. He's an outsider. It's a disaster. He doesn't understand the culture, whatever. But the last guy they had, Miami native Manny Diaz, I could be mistaken. I think Manny Diaz's dad was like the former mayor of Miami or something. So they've had the Miami guys before. And then I think even when you think about Mario Cristobal, think about how the narrative has flipped on him over the last couple years. Goes to Oregon Remember, Willie Taggart was the head coach at the time. He leaves after one year. People are apoplectic that that Oregon decided to promote this guy from within and keep him as the head coach at the University of Oregon. This guy wasn't a sure thing. He wasn't a done deal. He struggled. I don't want to say he struggled, but he got fired at Florida International. Goes to Oregon. To his credit, reboots his career. But then by the end at Oregon, you also started to see a trend. Really strong starts early, really poor finishes late, Uh, and there were two out of the last three years he was there where, to his credit, going into November, they were in the hunt for a playoff spot. And there's also, to his discredit, two times in three years where they completely fell apart down the stretch Three years ago, they lose to Arizona State in November with Justin Herbert as their freaking quarterback. And then, of course, last year, they lose to Utah in the second to last week of the season and then just get absolutely destroyed by Utah in the B- the Pac-12 championship game. And so why I think it's interesting is, you know, there's been this weird, in my opinion, like revisionist history on Mario Cristobal. I think he's an elite recruiter. I think he's a really good coach. I don't think he's an elite coach, though. At least I haven't seen anything yet. But we have this perception that, oh, well, you know, Miami just needed the right guy, and they needed a guy with Miami ties. Well, two out of the last three coaches had Miami ties. Two out of the last three coaches were elite recruiters. It's not as though they haven't recruited well. I think everybody just kind of, kind of thinks, oh, this is going to work, and they're going to be a threat to Clemson, and they might not, you know, kind of like USC, they might not be in the playoff this year, but give Mario Cristobal two or three recruiting classes, and it's over. Well, they were recruiting really well before Mario Cristobal, and what's especially interesting, I think, this year – is the idea that, keep in mind, they have a situation where, um, you know, they have a situation at Miami where they're kind of built to win right now. They're kind of built to win right now. They bring back Tyler Van Dyke, maybe one of the most, I don't know if he's underrated at this point, but that's a guy that's a potential first-round pick, by the way, from the state of Connecticut. Good stuff there. How about my, my CT kids? But this was a guy that was phenomenal last year and because Miami stunk early uh, I think it went a little under the radar how good they were after he came in finished the season with 25 touchdowns six interceptions just under 3,000 yards passing they got back their top uh, running back they got back talent at the skill positions but I also don't think it's a grand slam home run that they are elite this year play at Texas A&M play at Clemson do get Florida State at home, play at Virginia Tech, which is a first-year head coach, but that's a tough place to play. I just think it's fascinating. I I think Mario Cristobal, to me, is the most interesting first-year head coach, and I just don't know what to make of, like, I, I think Miami's good. I don't think anything is guaranteed, though. Final college football superlative. How about this one? My favorite little quirk of the season, favorite random quirk of the season. Do you guys remember that the Pac-12 got rid of divisions and now the two best teams in the Pac-12 just are in the conference championship game. And I think it's interesting for two different reasons. One, um, I think it's interesting because they did it to help themselves in the playoff picture. Now, of course, we're going to a world where USC and UCLA are leaving. Uh, the, the playoff is going to expand but might not even include uh, anything resembling automatic bids. And the Pac-12 might be screwed anyway without USC. So that's one but two, I just think it's interesting because of the way the setup of the league is, where I think, you, I, I think everybody kind of in their head, everybody likes Utah. Utah's going to be really good this year. They lose the Rose Bowl to Ohio State last season, but they're still a really good team. But behind them, everybody loves USC, and everybody loves Oregon. And I think everybody has this USC-Oregon uh, Pac-12 championship game in their head. Well, what I would say is, one, I like Utah more than anybody. And then two, UCLA is actually kind of interesting, too. They don't uh, they 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 don't play anybody challenging out of they they're a very interesting team in terms of the schedule, okay? Their schedule, UCLA's schedule is actually very set up for them to have success. This is UCLA's schedule. You're going to laugh when you hear it, okay? So first of all, open at home with three what should be wins. Bowling Green, Alabama State, South Alabama. Congrats to UCLA season ticket holders. You should see some barn burners there. Then they play at Colorado, Washington, and Utah then get a bye. So five of their first six games are at home. They play one true road game before mid-October, and that's at Colorado, which might be the worst team in the league outside of Arizona State. They get Oregon off a bye, and they get USC at home. I think this team can go 11-1. I really do. I don't think they're beating Utah, and I don't know if they're beating Oregon at Oregon, but they are getting them off a bye. But you just talked about an interesting quirk. What if we get a UCLA versus Utah Pac-12 championship game when everybody's projecting Oregon versus USC? All right, that's what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. Uh, That was a lot of college football superlatives to start the show. Take a quick break. Want to come back, talk this John Calipari versus uh, Paul Feinbaum stuff. How about this for a random pop-up? Paul Feinbaum just chirping at John Calipari. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I uh, do want to switch gears, and I'll say this: I know on Monday's episode of the Arator Sports Podcast, I told you that I was officially out of the John Calipari versus Mark Stoops business. I meant it at the time. At the end of the day, Mark Stoops said what he had to say, defended his program on Saturday. John Calipari issued the public apology. I don't believe that he intended to be malicious. And so as far as I was concerned on Saturday, I really was kind of just done with that story. Didn't think there was anything to add. I didn't think there was anything interesting. And I figured, look, if one of the other, one of those two coaches says something, we'll revisit it. But for the most part, I was completely done with it. Then Monday happened, then a third person threw his hat in the ring, Paul Feinbaum, the uh, acclaimed, uh, you know, well-known radio host on ESPN, he came out, he had some very interesting comments about the entire topic, and so I want to discuss it, because Paul Feinbaum on Monday said that he believes that John Calipari is no longer the best option for Kentucky basketball as far as its head coach. And if he had just said that, I kind of probably would have brushed it off You know my rule. I don't judge other people's opinions. I give out a lot of opinions myself. But when I saw that quote, and then I read the full context of what Paul Feinbaum said, I got to tell you, not only do I completely disagree with what he said, I also think a lot of what he said is actually nonsensical. Uh, And so let's get into it, because I think when you hear everything he said, you're going to be like, this guy doesn't even make sense. All right, so I want to get into it. First of all, credit uh, our buddies. I've talked about this show before Cole Kublick, friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Greg McElroy is a, a guy that I've grown to really respect just his coverage of college football, all that good stuff. They do, a Monday mor- they do a show Monday through Friday in Alabama. They were, of course, the show about two, three weeks ago that had Nick Saban on the show saying that last year was a rebuilding year. I actually agreed with Nick Saban at the time, but credit to Greg McElroy and Cole Kublik for getting Nick Saban and having him say that comment. Well, their show was also the one where Paul Feinbaum was on on Monday and was asked, you know, Paul Feinbaum does these hits across, especially the southeast part of the country, SEC country, and he's asked about all sorts of stuff. And so he was asked about the John Calipari, Mark Stoops stuff. And I'm not going to read you everything that he said. He did say, like, look, I think this is Mitch Barnhart, the AD, drawing a line in the sand. I think it's Mitch Barnhart kind of siding with his football coach, who isn't constantly up as you know what, asking for stuff. But he also said some interesting stuff about just kind of the present and future of college sports outside of just the John Calipari piece, which is interesting to me. So I want to start with one thing that Paul Feinbaum said before I get to what he actually said about Calipari. First, he said this, listen, I don't need to explain Kentucky basketball, but you and I understand that in 2022, when billion dollar deals are being made across the board, it's all about football. It's not about basketball. You might have legitimately been able to have heard Mike Krzyzewski say a year ago that we're a basketball school. But even at Duke today, you probably couldn't make that statement. And you certainly couldn't make it at the University of Kentucky. And so that part outside the Calipari stuff is interesting to me. And what I will say is I don't necessarily disagree with Paul Feinbaum on that. I don't necessarily disagree with what he said as far as basically everyone being a football school right now because football is what creates these billion-dollar TV deals. Even in the Big Ten, Indiana and Purdue are great basketball schools, but we all know the Big Ten is getting that TV contract because of football. So if you want to argue that the, the, the term basketball school or women's basketball school or baseball school or soccer school or whatever That simply doesn't exist in 2022? Okay, I can hear that argument. But I did find that particular argument very interesting with Paul Feinbaum's very specific quote about John Calipari. So let's get to this, and let's get to what Paul Feinbaum said about John Calipari. He said, I mean, are you guys telling me you can't find a coach better than John Calipari right now? Billy Donovan? I'm just throwing a name out there, a young coach who is up and coming, take your pick, John Calipari is really no longer the best option at Kentucky. And he said that he's taken a lot of phone calls on this topic. A lot of Kentucky fans have called into his show, and they are very mixed on how to feel about John Calipari. And I can tell you, as somebody who covers this stuff 365 days a year, college sports, the SEC, I can also tell you that Kentucky fans are very torn on how to feel about John Calipari. But why I find that last quote especially interesting is because when you pair it with the first quote, Paul Feinbaum's quotes make absolutely no sense. On the one hand, he's saying the term football school, the term basketball school no longer exists. If you play in the SEC, the Big Ten, anywhere with major college football, you are in fact a football school. But then he also says, yeah, but John Calipari kind of tries to stink, John Calipari stinks and needs to be fired. Well, let me ask you this. If you're arguing that Kentucky isn't a basketball school, but that John Calipari also needs to be fired, aren't you actually legitimately arguing that, oh no, it is a basketball school, and we're holding John Calipari to a different standard? Because that's where it gets interesting to me. If you're arguing the term basketball school doesn't exist, if you're arguing basketball doesn't matter on the level of football, I can rock with that argument. What I can't then rock with, though, is the idea that you have to fire a coach that whether you like him, whether you dislike him, and certainly over the last couple years, there is no doubt the results have not matched expectations. But John Calipari's resume is pretty strong at this point. I know we pick apart the one national championship, and I understand all the great recruits who have come through, and to only have one national championship, I understand where a Kentucky fan is disappointing. Where a Kentucky fan is disappointed. But at the same time, if you look at the totality of John Calipari's resume... It's pretty freaking incredible. 13 years at the school now, he's heading into year 14. He's heading into year 14, by the way, with a really good team that we saw in the Bahamas. In those 13 years, though, prior to this coming season, here is Cal Perry's resume. One national championship, four Final Fours, six SEC regular season titles, six SEC tournament titles. Uh, what is it? Eight, final, eight Elite Eights, seven Elite Eights, I believe. Seven Elite Eights, eight Elite Eights, something like that. And so let me ask you a very simple question. If Kentucky isn't a basketball school, how the heck are they going to get rid of a coach that has a national championship four, final four, six SEC regular season, six SEC tournament titles on his resume? Because to me, if you're truly a football school, if football truly matters, I'm sorry, you're not firing a coach with that sort of resume unless there's some kind of crazy personal life scandal, some NCAA scandal. As a matter of fact, Most coaches at football schools, they can't even get to that point in their careers because they get scooped up by somebody else. I mean, think about it. If the Ohio State basketball coach or the Alabama basketball coach or the Texas basketball coach, if they got one Final Four, if they got two Final Fours, don't you think by Final Four 3, Final Four 4, Final Four 5, Duke would scoop them up, Kentucky would scoop them up, Arizona would scoop them up, uh, Kansas would scoop them up, North Carolina Because I kind of think that they would. And so to me, like I said, I have no fundamental issue with Paul Feinbaum saying they need a better coach. I have no fundamental issue with Paul Feinbaum saying that the term basketball school no longer exists. Where I have a problem is Paul Feinbaum claiming that basketball schools no longer exist and football runs everything, and then immediately demanding a coach be fired who's won six SEC regular season titles, six SEC tournament titles, four Final Fours and a national championship. I do think it also leads, by the way, to a very interesting conversation about the second part of the quote, just in general, of whether, John Calip- if, whether there's actually somebody better out there for Kentucky basketball than John Calipari, and I will say this, I will say what I very often say on this show, in life people, what do I always say, two things can be true, two things can be true, and what I would say about this particular topic, I understand the frustration of Kentucky fans, I understand Kentucky fans feeling like they deserve more from a head coach. I also don't know that I agree with what Paul Feinbaum said. I don't know that I agree that there is somebody out there that definitively gives Kentucky basketball a better chance to win at the level, to do everything that that, that Kentucky does than John Calipari at this specific moment. First of all, there's just no way to know, right? I mean, you can throw out names of young guys and, and guys that are on the way up and all the stuff that Paul Feinbaum said. But we've seen just because a guy has success at a smaller school, a power you know, a power five, power six school, doesn't mean that just because you've had success at other levels, you are going to be able to handle what it is like coaching at what I would still call a basketball school, what John Calipari calls a basketball school. But at the very least, if we, agree, if we don't think basketball schools exist, then a school where basketball is top priority. We saw it with the guy prior to John Calipari at Kentucky. His name was Billy Gillespie. Now, most people don't remember it. It was 14 years ago. It was a complete disaster. Okay? Guy had had success at UTEP. The guy had had success as an assistant coach. The guy had had success at Texas A&M. He comes to Kentucky, completely melts down. How about, you want a better recent example? How about the guy that just got let go at Louisville? Chris Mack came in with an unimpeachable resume. Chris Mack came in, and I was the guy that said, this is can't miss. This is as can't miss as can't miss can get. Well, it freaking missed. By year four, he quit in the middle of the season because the pressure of being the Louisville basketball coach got to him. And so to me, the idea that there's just all these young up-and-comers. Now, there's a lot of really talented guys, but are there guys that can recruit at the level that Cal has? Are there guys that can win at the level as Cal has as consistently over the next decade, that is where I get tripped up. I think you might be able to recruit. I think you might be able to coach. Can you do it? Can you consistently win at the highest level? Can you consistently do it? And then most importantly, can you handle all the other pressures that come with Kentucky? And I think that's where Cal really does shine. You know, I thought the, the, the uh, telethon and the thing that they did a few weeks ago for flood relief was incredible. I don't know. And it's funny, because I was thinking about it today, and I think we actually have a perfect parallel, right? So I was thinking about it today. John Calipari had just turned 50 years old when he took the Kentucky job. His birthday's in February, he gets hired in April, had just turned 50 years old. Chris Beard, who I think we all agree is a very talented, young, up-and-coming coach, is 49 right now, he will be 50 next year. And so I'd be curious, and you guys, by the way, can chime in. Tweet at me, at Aaron underscore Torres. You can DM me, DM me on Instagram, Aaron Torres Pod. If I told you, you get Chris Beard at Kentucky the next 13 years, he is the same age almost within the month of when John Calipari took over. You give him 13 years, do you think you're getting more than one one national championship? I think it's fair to ask for one. I don't think it's definitive that you're getting more than one. Is it fair to ask that you're getting more than four Final Fours? I think that's a lot to ask for over a 13-year stretch. Is it fair to, to, to assume you're going to get six SEC regular season and six SEC tournament titles? With the way the SEC is now, I'd probably take the note. And by the way, I like Chris Beard. I think he's a great coach. But I'm just bringing this up to say, like, it's so easy to just sit there and say, uh, well, you know, I mean, there's somebody out there better. And maybe there is. I'd like to know who it is. I'd like to know who you can actually get, and that's a different part of the conversation is who can you actually get? We talk about it all the time. Nate Oates has like a $10 million buyout right now. You ain't getting Nate Oates. Mick Cronin has like a $20 million buyout right now. You ain't getting Mick Cronin. But it does bring up the interesting question, is there somebody that could definitively do the job better? I don't know that there is. Now, I may feel differently a year from now. I'll say this. This is a really big year. If Calipari, with the team that we just saw, destroy everybody in the Bahamas... And we're going to talk about that in a minute, the summer you know, tour recaps. If that team loses in the second round or that team loses to a 15 seed, then I think we kind of got to say, we got to call a spade a spade. But right now, I don't know that I'm willing to say that you give me any coach around 50 years old over the next 13 years, and I believe that they're definitively getting more national championships than John Calipari, getting more Final Fours than John Calipari, getting more SEC regular season and tournament titles than Calipari. I just not can't say that what a great segment of the air tour sports podcast did at do it again or did at do it again all right so what i'm gonna do i'm gonna take a quick break gonna come back and when i come back we're gonna wrap by talking those summer tours i did just mention it really excited to I, i i saw some great basketball over the last couple weeks excited to talk about some of these teams kentucky arkansas uh on and on uh alabama had a great tour as well we'll continue the conversation that's next All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. Final segment of the show, so good to be back. Do want to wrap, actually, with a little bit of college hoops because it's been a weirdly busy couple weeks in college basketball. You might be sitting there saying, but Torres, it's August. What does that mean? How could that possibly be? Well, here's why it's been a crazy couple weeks in college hoops. It is because once every four years, college basketball teams are allowed to take an overseas trip over the summer can go as close as Canada can go as far as to Europe Asia Uh, you know UCLA went to Australia a couple years ago but the reason why is pretty straightforward right it's an opportunity for the kids to get to do something cool something different college is supposed to be about life experience not just uh, playing a sport but then also for the teams the coaches get excited because you get a couple extra practices you get to play against live competition and you get to see how to stack up And so these trips are allowed once every four years. But obviously, this year, there is certainly an uptick in them for one obvious reason. You really haven't been able to do them each of the last two years. Obviously, 2020, there wasn't much international travel, if any travel at all, because of COVID. Last year, even travel was pretty limited. So this was really the first time in three years, that any of these schools have been allowed to take one of these trips. And so because of it, we got a ton of teams over the last couple weeks that were on their foreign tours. And what I want to do is spend a few minutes. I'm not going to overanalyze, but I do think there were some interesting things that came out of these trips. Uh, You get a chance to kind of see these teams ahead of schedule. And I, I do think there were some interesting things that came out. So the teams that we're going to talk about right now, uh, Kentucky, Arkansas, Auburn, Alabama, and Oklahoma all took trips in the last couple weeks, all concluded trips by now. And I just want to kind of hit on a few things that I noticed with each of them. We just wrapped with Kentucky, uh, Calipari versus Feinbaum. Let's quickly get into uh, Kentucky summer tour. Not going to bore you with stats, not going to bore you with many details. I'm just going to be blunt, just point-blank blunt. Kentucky looked not only better than I thought they would, they looked a lot better better than I thought they would, and let me explain why. First of all, I have been on the Jacob Toppin hype train for really about three years now. So I've said, he's a work in progress, he's a developmental player, but even dating back to the COVID year, you can find tweets of me saying that I believe that Jacob Toppin would eventually be a first-round NBA draft pick, or at the very least, an NBA player, and this was when he was coming off the bench after averaging about four or five points in one year at Rhode Island. Well, last year, it was kind of the same deal for Jacob Toppin at Kentucky. He was in a backup role to Keon Brooks. But every time that he got on the court, especially in big games, good things tended to happen. In that loss to uh, Auburn early in the season, remember that was an an iconic game, he had a couple big plays, but 14 points at LSU when LSU was playing some really good basketball. He had 11 points against Kansas in a win at Fog Allen Fieldhouse. He had 11 points in a win, uh, or loss, excuse me, against Tennessee, 13 points in a win over Alabama late in the year. And so one thing that always stood out to me was that he seemingly played his best basketball in the biggest games against the best competition, and what that said to me was that essentially he's an NBA player. You know how NBA players, sometimes they don't thrive in college because the court is so condensed? Well, when he could just get up and down and hoop, the kid could absolutely play, and if you watched these foreign tour games for Kentucky, it was impossible to not watch this kid stand out. Specifically, the third game that they played, I am just telling you right now, He looked like a National Player of the Year candidate. Now, I'm not saying he's going to win National Player of the Year, especially because he's got the reigning National Player of the Year on the court with him, but he had 27 points. Kentucky basketball actually shared kind of a video highlight reel of him from that game on Twitter and Instagram. I encourage you to go find it if you have two minutes. Guy looks like a pro. He's hitting step-back threes. He's taking people off the dribble. He's finishing at the rim, and the one thing that I liked especially was that he was very aggressive defensively. He's a kid that obviously he's Obi Toppin's brother, and he spent most of the summer training for the NBA draft and playing against pro players. And you can just see the confidence in him oozing out. Like, I was practicing against pros all summer. This ain't nothing but a thing to me. And I'm telling you, I believe he is an all SEC caliber player. Now, on top of Jacob Toppin, a couple other guys stood out. First of all, Damian Collins is a guy that, oh my goodness, Very much stood out. Six foot 10, former McDonald's All American, and he was kind of one of those guys. I'll give him a little bit of credit. He came to Kentucky last year. If you want, look at all the stupid mock draft boards, and I hate preseason mock drafts because I don't think the guys that do them, for the most part, I think there's a couple that do them well. Sam Vicini at The Athletic does a really good job. But for the most part, they just take the high school recruiting rankings from the previous year, plug them in, and you have a kid like Damian Collins who wasn't even ready to play college basketball last year, let alone the NBA projected as an NBA draft pick. But to his credit, he didn't play a ton last year, but rather than uh, you know transferring or doing whatever, came back and he's just a different dude. He's a, a a kid that's newer to basketball, newer to weight training. This was all a process. He looked unbelievable in the Bahamas. Go back, find the YouTube videos. The kid was incredible. Three, four, just wicked dunks. And you know he's one. I don't think he's as far along as Jacob Toppin. But this is a kid with the crazy upside that he has. I could see him having a couple games where he just drops 20 out of nowhere, and he's another one that looks like he is going to end up being a first-round pick. I am planting my flag. I believe Jacob Toppen will be a first-round pick, even though he is actually about 22, going to be 23 years old. Damian Collins, I think, could be a first-round pick next year. Finally, I'd wrap by saying Antonio Reeves, the transfer from Illinois State, looked awesome as well. He was actually the MVP of the Bahamas trip overall, and what I would say about Antonio Reeves, the thing that stood out to me, is that he was a kid who transferred up from the mid-major level, played at Illinois State last year, and the one thing you always have to wonder when a kid transfers up a level is, is he going to be able to handle the step up in competition? Well, it wasn't a problem for Antonio Reeves, he averaged a team high 17 points per game on the trip. And he hit close to he hit over 50 percent from three on the trip and he had uh, I, I thought maybe outside of Jacob Toppin, in the best game of any Kentucky player in the Bahamas 23 points in their final game of the of the trip and uh, he just looks really good and he looks like the kind of guy that can step in, be instant offense, get you 14 to 16 on any given night maybe 18-20. I'll just say overall Kentucky looked a lot better than I thought they would. Uh, I thought what it kind of stood out. Oscar Shibway got his numbers, but like Oscar Shibway, I don't want to say he looked like just a dude, he didn't look like just a dude, but there were other guys that stepped out. Uh, I had Kentucky as a preseason, like probably seven or eight in the country. If there are seven or eight teams that are more talented than them coming into the year, uh, we're going to have the best season in college basketball ever. Not saying, you know, and it goes back to the Calipari conversation from last segment, Calipari's got to step up, no excuses. But this team looked better than I thought. Cason Wallace, another freshman I thought looked very good as well. Uh, athletic, plays hard on defense. This team is longer, they're more athletic, and they potentially shoot the three ball better. Plus, they have two returning starters who are both in their fourth year of college basketball. Oscar Sheba and Xavier Wheeler really like this team a lot. Let's keep it going with Arkansas. Arkansas played in Spain and Italy. They go 4-0, um, and it's absolutely fascinating because they went 4-0 against professional teams. And on the one hand, there was stuff to really like, and on the other, there was stuff to be concerned about. Uh, Credits coach Muss, he didn't beat around the bush, he did a media availability after the the four games. The final game, Arkansas had 30 turnovers. Um, His exact quote was uh, something to the effect, let me see if I can find the quote really quick, the turnovers are ridiculous, words cannot describe how concerned I am about our turnovers. And so I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat and say it was all you know rainbows and sunshine. But what I would also say is you're talking about a team with 11 new players, uh, really only one guy that played last year. And even though there is definitely cause for concern, or th- there are concerns coming out. One, you went 4-0. and But two, you watch that team, it's impossible not to see the upside. Super long, super athletic. Uh, they could just throw bodies at you one after the other after the other breakout star of this event uh Trevon Brazil the forward from Missouri and I'll just be honest so I was texting Zach Kroll our college basketball writer at AT online Uh, he's been on this podcast before I really don't remember this kid at Missouri now he was kind of an upside long-term project player he came on late in the year this kid another one I'm planting my flag Jacob Toppin is a first round pick this year at Kentucky Trevon Brazil is a first round pick this year at Arkansas You want a crazy stat. First of all, 28 points in the final game of the trip. Here's a crazy stat for you. This is insane. He shot 93% from two-point range on this trip. 93%. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that they were playing the best teams ever, but you're playing some form of professional teams. You're playing grown men. 93%, 28 of 30 from two-point range. Super long, super athletic, dunked the crap out of the ball. I mean, this is this guy is just a total game changer in a way that I wasn't anticipating. To keep the conversation going on Arkansas, I thought their two older players, the guys that have been there before, I thought were excellent. First of all, Devo Davis, really interesting player. Was a breakout guy as a freshman in 2020-2021 when Arkansas made its first Elite Eight under Eric Musselman. And everybody, including me, had crazy expectations on this guy coming into last year. He was my preseason player of the year. And I don't know whether it was because you know the expectations were too high or you know NIL got involved and now he's representing companies and his face is everywhere, but he kind of had a little bit of a drop-off last year in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, and so to see him come on this foreign tour, and what I liked was two things. One... He looked very confident. He played with a high degree of confidence. And two, I mean, he just produced. But I mean, more than anything, he just looked like, okay, I'm the older guy. I'm the veteran guy. My team needs me to be great every night, bring it every night. Maybe not be great. Be great's an exaggeration, but my team needs me to bring it every single night. I need to be the emotional leader. I need to be the spiritual leader. I need to be accountable and I thought he was that throughout the trip, finished well at the basket, does what he does. He's not a great three-point shooter, um, but I thought overall he just looked more confident. He looked like the player that I thought would be SEC Player of the Year last year. Now, I don't think he'll be that this year. I think Arkansas has too many good players, but really like him. Uh, Kamani Johnson, For fun fact, he is Dakari Johnson's brother. Remember Dakari Johnson from Kentucky, but Kamani Johnson, I thought, played really well, too. Veteran guy, older guy, the only other player on this roster to come back from last season. He looked awesome. Just, just and, and he's another guy. He is what he is. He's a rebounder energy hustle guy. But at 10 points and 10 rebounds in the final game, a game that came down to the wire, I, I don't think you can undersell what just having an older veteran player does for this team. Keep in mind, you can win at the highest level with freshman in college basketball, Kentucky won a title with Anthony Davis. Duke won a title with Jaleel Okafor. There's been other good freshmen in college basketball. But even the teams with elite freshmen, and Arkansas does have elite freshmen, you do need impact from older players. You don't need them to be stars. Quinn Cook wasn't a star at Duke. Uh, Terrence Jones wasn't a star at Kentucky. Darius Miller wasn't a star at Kentucky when they won a title with Anthony Davis. But you need veterans to be good enough and be those guys and that's what I really liked out of Arkansas one other guy that stood out for Arkansas uh, I thought that Barry Dunning freshman from Alabama I thought he looked really good uh, was a guy I didn't really know what to expect I haven't seen him a ton in high school was a guy that you know freshmen could easily get lost in the shuffle thought he gave them really good minutes shout out to Arkansas 4-0 on their summer trip as well let's keep it going I would say the surprise team of these summer tours Let's give it up to the Alabama Crimson Tide. Alabama, look, by no means is Alabama coming off a quote-unquote bad season, right? But two years ago, they win the SEC, SEC tournament. They go to the Sweet 16. And I think everybody just kind of thought last year it would kind of continue that way, especially when they started out early really well with a win over Gonzaga in Seattle, a win over Houston at home. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, Alabama's just arrived. They're a college basketball power right now. And it just didn't happen. They were up and down all year. They had some injuries. Javon Quinterly gets hurt in the NCAA tournament. But it was really just about consistency. So more than anything, what stood out to me was a couple things. One, really good assist numbers. Two, you know, they went 3-0, and we'll get to some players. But Nate Oates said something very interesting. He said something to the effect of, I really like our guys and everybody is bought into their role, or something to the effect of there are guys coming off the bench who really believe in the role that we've provided for them. And what that says to me is that I think there was some infighting in the program last year. I would guess um, you know they had a lot of transfer turnover, and I don't think that was coincidental. But I think more than anything, um, you know, when they went out in the portal this year, I think they were very particular about the types of dudes that they're going to bring in. Are you going to be a veteran? Are you going to be uh, an adult in the locker room? Are you going to accept a role? And are you going to be a leader for everybody else? And the answer appears to be yes. Now, the star player of the tournament wasn't one of those transfers. It was Brandon Miller, 6'9", McDonald's, All-American, originally from Tennessee. Kid is awesome. I mean, you know, he's just skinny, wing, athlete kid. But he's one that is a projected first-round pick, and I think he's going to get there. And he just had an incredible summer tour for them. Uh, 28 points in their second game, 21 points in their final game, 17 points in the first one. And then I would also give credit to another kid, Namari Burnett. Uh, He's a former McDonald's All-American, began his career at Texas Tech, transfers to Alabama, gets hurt last preseason, misses all of last year. And I kind of talked to somebody, you know, around the Alabama program during the summer, and he kind of told me, that they thought Namari Burnett was the missing piece. He's kind of a guy that can play on the ball, he can play off the ball, he can kick and drive, he can shoot threes. He was kind of the guy that was the missing piece last year. I've had a chance to interview him. Really good kid, uh, nice kid, sweet kid. And so I think kind of that, that talent, that attitude, the, the team part of it, I think he was the guy that they were missing last year. Well, he looks really good in their, their preseason trip. 19 points in Game 2, 13 in Game 3. Nate Oates, of course, gives out the hard hat for the player who he deems to have played the hardest, do the little things to make you win. Namari Burnett did win the hard hat uh, on the final day, final game of the uh, of the trip, and so credit where it's due. Uh, I thought Alabama looked better than I was expecting. Nate Oates insinuated. There were some comments that he made that made me feel like maybe uh, this group is a little bit more bought in than last year's group, and that's just me kind of reading the tea leaves. But I just bring it up to say I was really, really impressed by them. Really quickly, two other teams. You know, one, Auburn went 2 and 1. Now, I will say in their loss, it was to literally the Israeli national team. Uh, Israel, basketball wise, is one of the best countries in the world. They have guys in the NBA. This was their senior national team. So this is 24, 25, 30, 31 year old grown men. I believe they had at least one player that played in the NBA. But I'll tell you, you know, Auburn's games were on ESPN. I didn't catch every single minute of all of them. But they looked really good. I mean, they looked really good as well. Uh, The first win was by like 40-plus points. And the thing that stood out, super deep and can play a bunch of guys. Uh, Bruce Pearl said after the the event, he goes, I think we got 12 or 13 guys that can contribute on this team. Now, normally I would be concerned about that. I've talked about it with Gonzaga. I've talked about it with other schools. Kentucky, that's always an issue with John Calipari. He plays six, seven guys. Uh, Same with Arkansas, Eric Musselman. Bruce Pearl's a guy, he'll, he'll, he'll go deep into his bench if he believes that he has the right group of guys. Uh, in terms of individual players, you know, one, I thought Johan Treor, uh, freshman McDonald's All-American. I think I mentioned this in the preview of these summer tours. He was the lowest rated five-star, according to 24-7 Sports. I believe he was the 25th ranked player in the country. And I remember seeing that and saying, I I saw this kid in high school. If he's a 25th-ranked player in the country, uh, then this is the best high school class ever. I think he was underrated. I think he is going to be really good uh, at Auburn. thought he looked really good over the course of the summer tour, um, including, by the way, early, you know, first first two games that they played. I believe he went for 20-plus each. Uh, Janae Broom was really good. He is the transfer from Moorhead State, 18 points, 12 rebounds against that Israeli national team. I thought Alan Flanagan, who two years ago was one of Auburn's best players, gets hurt in the offseason, comes back last year. He isn't 100%. I think he's finally starting to look good. Auburn goes 2-1 and one in its trip. Finally, really quickly, a team that's kind of more intriguing to me than I think they get credit for, the Oklahoma Sooners. Um, Oklahoma went 3-0 and in a foreign tour. I believe they were in Spain and France in totality. Guy to know there, Grant Sherfield, transfer from Nevada, Averaged 20 points and 6 assists each of the last two years. I believe he was like number 6 in the country in assists last year. Was the preseason Mountain West Player of the Year. It doesn't work out. He leaves Steve Alford, and he ends up at Oklahoma. Had a couple really good games there. They also have a kid named Milos Uzan, who is a freshman, kind of a bigger guard, who played really well. Uh, Had 9 points, 9 assists, one game, double figures, another. Oklahoma, another team to watch. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Arntor Sports Podcast. A lot of good content in today's show. We are getting awfully close to football, and I, for one, cannot wait. Don't know when we'll talk basketball again. I'm sure stuff will pop up. We'll have some commitments, uh, but we're gonna, you know, we're full speed ahead with football, as I've told you. Make sure to pay attention. We got some really cool announcements coming. If you're not subscribed to the Tour Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you are following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Again, make sure you're paying attention. We got a lot of big announcements coming. I'll tell you this, you're going to have a chance to make some money this football season off your boy Torres. I will explain that uh, probably as early as next week, so make sure to pay attention. But as I always like to say, that is all for today's show. Shout-out to Torrent Craig. Shout-out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout-out to JJ Redick, head, Unblock me, dude.
0: 18 plus.